Many people are born with the entrepreneurial gene. However, rarely does someone realize they are meant to be their own boss and find their knack for business while flying combat missions in Vietnam. For a select few, the demands of war elevated their minds to new and slightly illegal levels of business creativity. With us today is best-selling author, finance ninja, Marine Corps gunship pilot, and Vietnam veteran, Robert Kiyosaki. A successful entrepreneur whose first swing at business was selling $5.45 caliber pistols for 45 bucks. We talk about his childhood, his combat experience in Vietnam, and the unwritten brotherhood that comes with being a Marine, along with some court-martial shenanigans, some tough leadership lessons learned, and how flying a helicopter can even get you a date. I'm your host, Susan, and this is The Ready Room Podcast. And we'll start talking. So, Spencer, say something. Uh, just a test or? Yeah, just test, test. And then Robert, go test, ahead and say test, something. Test. You have to project. Okay, yeah. Project. There testing, 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 testing. There you you're go. Still, you're speaking in your mouth. Project means project. <laughs> project. From yes, project. Someone who's been okay. yelled at by drill instructors before <laughs> can, knows that for sure. Section right. 10 hut. 10 huts. Okay. Well, hey, let's kick it. I like the, I like the start. All right, folks, uh, we're here in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, I'm here with Robert Kiyosaki, author of many books, Financial Ninja, and his executive assistant and apprentice, Spencer Gopalin. Is that how I say it? Gopalin, yes. Gopalin, damn, sorry, bro. It's all good. Uh, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, right. thank you for having me on. No, this is, awesome. this is awesome. So we're doing this. We're going to talk Marine Corps stuff. So you talk a lot about finance. We're gonna, we'll hit a little bit of that later on and how you connect that in the Marine Corps stuff to your, your business world, but, you know, People can read your books. There's some good books out there. So, so real quick, let's get her going. How we first met. I so, think this is this is important because Spencer, as my apprentice, you get more military from me than business, right? Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. Because Spencer is in the MBA program and all that stuff, and I say that's all bullshit, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so what happened was we're at Swift, whereas uh, we have. I have my new Lair 60. And what happened after that, Spencer? Well, we were waiting for our uh, flight to take off, and um, Robert had the uh, opportunity to run into Philip. And I was with him, and the one thing that I noticed immediately was the energy in the room. It felt like you guys had known each other forever, and uh, it was like a brotherly connection that just took place immediately. It was like you guys fought together and, and everything. So it was really amazing to see, and it was a connection that I don't see very often between just random strangers. It was something I noticed, like when we started, when you started telling your story about, you know, a couple Hawaii shenanigans, and you and Nicole were kind of like, what's going on here? You know? It's like, it's like we knew each other for, and we're completely different, two generations apart. But being marine pilots, there's a brotherhood that is supersedes time and space and education, everything. Is that, that what you picked up, Spencer? Yeah, that's what I witnessed firsthand. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's kind of an unwritten thing. And I try to describe it to people. You know, and you run into a buddy from high school that you haven't seen in, you know, 20 years. And he was your partner crying back in the day. But even, you know, helo pilot and jet pilot from different generations. But I've, these were the guys that paved the way for, you know, my bros and I, even the guys before me. You know, the guys that flew in Vietnam, Korea, World War II. Holy cow. I mean, just balls of steel. So, 
And I, I wonder how many stories, like, have you guys actually gotten a chance to sit down and, like, shoot the shit and tell stories and stuff? Well, I told him why I was court-martialed twice. Okay. We, we're going to get to that. <laughs> just, I have disciplinary problems. <laughs> that was something. I, I didn't put that in here, but were you, like, a Hellraiser back in the day as a kid? No, I was actually a good kid. So when did, where did this uh, rebellious streak start up? It's a lot. It's, I, um, I should just go, when I was 14, for some reason, I knew I was going to be a Marine. I don't know why. You know, I saw the Sands of Iwo Jima with John Wayne and all this. My whole family was Army. And as we were talking before this, is that what happened after Pearl Harbor, December 7th, they locked my family up. The Japanese were put in concentration camps, and we don't talk about that. So my relatives had their farmland, their houses, their cars, everything confiscated, and whole families were moving to concentration camps up and down the west coast of America, just like they had German concentration camps for POWs from, the, from Europe. So what happened to my family, because our, our heritage is samurai in the caste system of Japan, and we're for, I'm fourth generation, they're a third generation. And they said, we're going to fight for our country. So the way my family proved that we were Americans was they formed an infantry battalion in the army called the 442nd. If you look it up, it is the most highly decorated army infantry battalion in history. No kidding. They just kicked ass all the way from North uh, Africa all the way up. And I talked to my uncle. And he says one of the high points or low points of his life was when they uh, went into Dachau, the concentration camps where they're holding the Jews. And nobody knew about those concentration camps that Hitler was doing. And he's, he sit there and he says, there's a poetic justice here. You know, we came here to fight for, the, for America as Americans and we walk into this concentration camp full of Jews. So that uncle would talk to me probably more than my other uncles. And the irony, think about that uncle, he was going to be a pro football player. The, the Detroit Lions offered him a, a, you know, a, a chance to try out for the Lions. And this is in the 40s. But unfortunately, he stepped on a landmine. Oh. And so there went his football career. But it didn't upset him. He just says it inspired him. And one of the reasons I want Spencer here is because when, when you and I met, there was, this, there was this brotherhood, there was an understanding that I think a lot of the generation of men coming up today due to the feminist movement, which started in the 60s, it's really affected young men. So I have, I just say, relatives who are a little older than Spencer, but when Desert Storm broke out, you know, the, it's in the heritage of our family to fight for America. Mm-hmm. You know, I had seven uncles that fought in World War II, two fought, for the, two fought against the Japanese. Mm-hmm. One was captured and castrated. So, I mean, our family paid the price. So these relatives of mine, these young men, I said, are you guys going to go fight? They go, no, 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 I don't think so. And there's something happening. So that's why I wanted Spencer to be part of this because he's of that generation his biological father and I are really good friends. His, his biological father <coughs> is my cardiologist. Very great guy. But uh, then you have a stepfather, right, who's 
He's in the army. Yes, yes. He's a uh, colonel in the army. And I've known him for about 11 years of my life. Grew up with him in his house. Um, So I was always under the military style of um, discipline in a way, whatever he could do. Um, He would always encourage me, you know, don't go to college, just go to military school. They'll fix you right up and straighten you out and you'll really become a man. And, um, <laughs> and I tell you the same thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, so what happened, Philip, after, after you and I were yakking and having, you know, like yeah. this is the band of brothers, so I think if you said, Jesus, maybe I should go to flight school or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just seemed like I've never experienced a connection with a random stranger like that before. Um, and when you're in that, it seemed like when you're in that tight-knit community of the military and the Marines especially, it's something that I would be lucky to experience. It's a, uh, gosh, I chuckle because all the, when you go through all the training and the, the stress and the boot camp and all the challenges, that is where that bond is kind of forged. Oh, I see. It's not in the easy stuff. It's when you're freezing your balls off or you're flying your however many missions and you're getting shot at all the time and all those things. But the guy next to you, he's living through it with you. You, it, I, it's really hard to describe. Um, where some of, I'm even closer with some of my Marine bros than I am with family members, you know, uh, just because they've experienced the same stuff. And uh, if you haven't had that type of stress um, or challenge experienced, I would seek it in some form or fashion. Okay. There's, yeah. yeah. Whether it be, you know, military or sign up for a crazy difficult race. You know, find something that you're like, this looks hard as hell, and just go do it. Well, Spencer's only 20 years old right now, and that's when I was, you know, when I was 20, the Vietnam War was still on. Tet had an off- Tet offensive hadn't happened yet, and I was draft exempt. I went to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy at Kings Point, and the reason I was draft exempt is because I'm non-defense vital industry. When I graduated in 69, I would be a ship's officer, specifically oil tankers. And as you know, you know, military is 90% logistics. Can you get the bombs and the weapons and the things at the time? So when I was Spencer's age, you know, about 20, I'm sitting there, I'm going to graduate in a year or two and I'm going and the starting pay in 1969 for a ship's officer in the war zone carrying bombs to Vietnam was 120,000 a year. So that's not much money today, but in 69, I'm 21 years old. And I could choose between making 120,000 a year or $200 as a Marine Lieutenant. 120,000 a year? Yeah, because well, we had to spend 18 months in the war zone delivering bombs back and forth. It was, okay. the way, I don't know why they did it that yeah. way. So that was 69 and I'm sitting there going, but like I said, when I was 14, Something told me I was going to be a Marine. There were so many things that led me to that decision, not just one. I remember when I was 12, I met a man named Dr. Tom Dooley, and he was in Laos. And I was in Hilo, Hawaii, and my mother and father were very much into the peace movement. They were Peace Corps guy. My mom and dad were Peace Corps. I was Marine Corps. Nice. But Dr. Tom Dooley stood up there, and he, the first time I heard about it, he says, there's something going on in Laos, and back then it was called the Pathet Lao. In Vietnam, they were called the Viet Minh. And something told me at 12 years old 
that this guy, Dr. Tom Dooley, a naval officer, was talking to me. And then when I was 14, I'm riding with mom and dad. I said, I'm going to join the Marine Corps. But this is an interesting thing, Philip. So when I'm 18, the Army was now desperate for fodder. Sure. So I'm about to graduate from high school, and the, Mar and the Army started the warrant officer program for helo pilots. So you could be 18 years old, you go to Fort Rucker, and next thing you know, you're in Vietnam. Yeah. And so I had to talk to my dad, and he just said, just the same thing I'm saying to Spencer, get your college degree, then you go do what you want. So what happened, by the time, so I went to Kings Point, was the Merch Marine Academy. I had appointments in Naval Academy and Merch Marine Academy. I took Merch Marine Academy because we're the highest paid graduates in the world. 120K, I don't know, what are you guys starting out these days? Much, much lower than that. That's insane. In, 45, in 1970 or 69? 69. Oh my gosh. But we, but we had to sit in Vietnam. Yeah. Which is not bad, you know, because we're not in the war zone. We're right. in Vietnam. There's a difference in the, in the laws. So that's why when I was Spencer's age, I'm sitting there going, and Tet was on, there was 68, and I saw all the press turning against America. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they started showing the atrocities like Me Lai and all this. And I knew something was changing. So just like today, where the press will censor us, you know, I, I, I call it the Kremlin of Silicon Valley. Gotcha. You know, they're a bunch of Marxists. And going, to, and going to military school, the economics I studied was uh, Marx, Lenin, Mao, and Hitler. And communist education and Marxism are opposite of capitalism. So why did you study those? Military school. So you learned about all of those. That was, yeah. that was part of the syllabus. Oh, oh, oh. You know, I, I, went, I, went, I was in the MBA program at the University of Hawaii for about six months. They were talking about M1, M2, M3. I'm going... I'd rather learn about Marx, Hitler, and Stalin, and Mao, because that's what's affecting us today. Because as far as I'm concerned, when I came back from Vietnam, it was January 3rd, 1973, January 10th, 1973, I got spit on and hit by eggs by all these hippies. My generation, you know, the Woodstock generation, the peace, generation of peace and love, and they're spitting on me. And Philip, that was my generation. That was the Vietnam generation. And we got spit on, shed on, crapped on. You know, when I, not that I could get a date anyway, but I got stationed in Hawaii and our heads are shaved, right? Everybody knows you're a freaking Marine. Right. You're the only idiot walking around with no hair on your head. You know? And everybody, everybody looked like they had ponytails and man buns, what do they call them today? I'm going, Whoosh. Well, you somehow got a date. Huh? You eventually got a date, right? Well, I had to persevere, you know. But anyway, <laughs> No, it was really tough because a lot of times women would not go out with us if you were military. That was, that was my perception. But that's why I got into trouble the second time. I was stationed at Kaneohe Marine Corps Air Station. So hang on, we got, we got to break this down a little oh, wait, bit. Wait, wait, so you're, you're, you're flying Hueys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah. right, but you had a Cobra qual as well. Huh? Right, you got, you got dual qualled Hueys and Cobras? Yeah, or, and, no, and fixed wing. Okay, so but my primary... Aircraft I wanted in, when I was at Pensacola yeah. was an A-1 SPAD. The Sky Raider. Douglas Sky Raider. They yeah. called it the dump truck. Oh, man. And that thing could stay on station, I don't know, for two or three hours. So, all right, Spencer, do you know what? Tell them what the Sky Raider was. This is the, this is the grunts prefer. I mean, this was, when it came to fixed wing, this is what the guys on the ground would prefer. And tell them about it. 
it was a fixed wing. The engine was so big. They said he could always tell a SPAD pilot because their right leg was twice as big as the left leg. <laughs> because when you hit the power on a SPAD, if your right leg wasn't strong enough, the aircraft would flip over on the ground. There was so much torque from those engines. Oh, my God. And But tell them about what they carried. Oh, they carried everything. Rockets, bombs, you know, whatever the mission required, you carried. So here I am. I'm all excited. I'm going to fly the SPAD. And they, they sold the SPAD to the Vietnam, for the Vietnamese. So they stuck me in this Huey. I'm going, what the frick is a Huey? <laughs> but that's what I'm saying is that the Army was trying to hire me at 18 to fly the Huey. So I wound up flying the Huey anyway, which was the best thing I could have done because when I was at flight school at, in, in Pensacola at Allison, NAS Allison, they said, you're assigned to Camp Pendleton. And I went, guns. They said, yeah, you're a gun, gunship pilot. I, I felt like God saved me or something. Because I didn't want to drive the 46 right. or the 53 because you're just sitting targets. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so at least you got some, you know, I mean. And then what squadron did you go to? Huh? What squadron did you check into at Pendleton? That was a squadron I was pointing yeah. to when I met you at the airport. Yeah. Said, That's my own squadron. That's how I knew it was you. Well, because I just I yeah. saw, I, I had one of your audio books on, and his picture is on the on my truck screen as I'm driving. Listen to this. I was listening to Cash Flow Quadrant, and I was like, "Wait a second. And you're pointing at the two six seven. So HMLA two six seven. Shout out Stingers. And uh, I was like, "I think that's Robert Kiyosaki. And then I came over and we started bullshitting. Yep. But so how was two six seven when you first got there? I I loved it. I mean I. You know, we transitioned from helicopter. I went from fixed wing to helicopter. And then I said, oh, my God, I'm, I'm going to get stuck flying a loach. I mean, like a, you know, a 57, which is observation, which means setting target. Or the 46, which means setting target. <laughs> or the 53, which means giant setting target. You know? <laughs> and so, the, Spencer, the thing I liked, I loved about the Marine Corps, they could somehow fit you to the aircraft. So my personality was a gunship pilot. It was, I, was at, I was in heaven. Oh, wow, that's amazing. So when I met yeah. you, Philip, and your F-18 pilot, I go, holy shit. You know, if I was, an, if I was going to be a jet pilot, it would be the F-18. But in our days, it was the F-4 and the A-4. Yeah, so did you, you wanted fixed wing. I right? wanted to fly the SPAD. SPAD. Not any so fixed wing. How did, it, how did it work out that back in the day when you selected, was it Hilo, fixed wing? That was it. That was Jets it. or Jets. So, okay, so if you got jets, you're flying the A4 or the F4. F4, right. Got it. SPAD would have been cool. That's like the, that's the, do you know what the A10 Warthog is? Yes. All right, so that, that is the, if you're going to make a, a cousin, yeah. like an old cousin of the A10, it would be the Vietnam SPAD. Oh, okay. The A1 SPAD. Yeah, Raider. so very low flying. Yeah. Oh, you can, I mean, Spencer, these guys are up in the sky. The reason I wanted to fly the SPAD is you have to get down close and personal. Oh yeah, I see. <laughs> yeah, they were. I mean, they were dropping. They were dropping napalm right on top of fifty feet. Holy shit! I mean, these dudes had some stones. Yeah, and then they sold the SPAD to the uh, to the Vietnamese Air Force. And I went, sons of a bitch. <laughs> so you got the Helos. I got the, I got the Huey. You got the and Huey. Then the gunship and then the Cobra, and then I actually flew for the Army Cobra time more than I did for the Marine Corps. Okay, because so how you got through sixty uh, to um, seventy two? I, I arrived on station on a carrier. Okay, what carrier were you guys on? Okinawa LPH three. All right, and that was off which coast? Were you guys? We're right off of uh, Da Nang. Da Nang. Okay, got it. 
So we'd fly into Da Nang, which used to be a Marine station on Marble Mountain. But now the Army had taken over, and they had Cobras, and they were flying more than we did and needed pilots. So I was a maintenance officer for my squadron, so we'd fly ashore, and I'd be fixing helos, Marine helos, and I can't fix anything. You know? So I'd walk over to the Army at Marble Mountain, and I'd say, uh, guys need a pilot? They'd say, can you fly the Cobra? I said, of course. So they strapped me in, in the front seat, where the guns and rockets were. I was so turned on, you couldn't believe it. <laughs> Had you actually flown a Cobra before that? Yeah. yeah okay, yeah, so you're yeah. all qualled up. I wasn't qualified. You know, we, you know how, I don't know, well, you guys don't do it, but we used to jump around to different aircraft. I, I, that's what I've heard. I heard you could, back in the day, and you he, could just go jump in and, hey, man, I'll fly. Right. Oh, man, I would love to do that, but I might get in some trouble. <laughs> no, so but, you did know, you the, feel but, prepped? Were but you the, ready? But the F-18 is a completely different aircraft than the F-4 or the A-4. Yeah. Or the A-6. Yes. The A-6. A-6 was the intruder. We used to call it the flying coffin because the mission was similar to the helicopter. It came in at low level. Mm-hmm. And you guys were always high in the sky. Yeah. Yeah, the A-6 uh, low-level bomber. And they would carry, gosh, actually the Marines would actually take a part of the aircraft. I think it was part of the landing gear. They would take off so they could put, I think, two or three extra bombs on each side. Wow. Um, and there's a movie called, you've seen Flight of the Intruder. Right? I love that shoot. Oh, man. my gosh. Uh, some homework, some old school pilot homework. You guys should watch it together. Watch Flight of the Intruder and just the laugh. Flight of the Intruder, but there was a scene in there where he got, was Willem Dafoe? He got shot down. Willem Dafoe, yeah. He's the, one, he's the, uh, he's the Wizzo or the Rio that gets shot down. Yeah. yeah. He's on the ground, and he calls in a spad. Sandy. 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 He says, Sandy, do it. I do it for you. Basically, he asked the SPAD pilot to drop the napalm on him. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I have to check that movie out for sure. I do it for you. It's a classic one. Everyone classic knows it. Line yeah, everyone knows says, it. Do it. Do it. Like me saying to Philip, do it. I do it for you. He's literally asking the guy to bomb him because he's about to get overrun. Yeah, that. You got to watch it, man. It's entertaining. There's some Definitely. other funny parts in there, too, you know. Uh, Going downtown. Yeah. <laughs> What was the one? Fighter pilots make movies. Bomber pilots make history. I think is, I think is what it was. <laughs> is that how it goes? Some, there's, um, don't quote me on that. It's something to the effect. Just watch it, man. It's good. Yeah, you no, can find it on like VHS or something, or it might be on Netflix oh, okay, hidden yeah. somewhere. Well, VHS, uh, that's old school. Movie old school. Then, yeah. Uh, but you'll appreciate it. But yeah, oh, yeah. I do it for you, Sandy. Uh, so I do did it you, for you. Do you feel prepped? Like after? You, did you feel prepped for Vietnam coming out of two six seven? Oh, you're never prepped until they start shooting. This is what George Foreman says. Everybody has a plan until you can take the first punch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Mike Tyson quote. Yeah, Mike Tyson, yeah. yeah. We had no idea what we're getting into. And I had been to Vietnam before in 66 as a student. I drove a, a victory ship as a, as a midshipman as part of our sea year at Kings Point, Merch Marine Academy in New York. And we went to Vietnam to deliver bombs to Camran Bay. So I sat in Cameron Bay, and it was the first time I'm actually watching this war. I'm going, See, this looks pretty like fun, you know. <laughs> and uh, so that's, but I kind of knew, that's not saying to Spencer, I knew it was going to be a Marine. I don't know why. Did you know that? I just wanted something crazy to do. Yeah. And I was a pretty, I'm a pretty simple thinking human. They had the best uniforms. So I knew that. The training, like the boot camp, from what I'd read, was the hardest. 
And that was it. I was like, give me the craziest one with the best uniforms. That's it. What, what I was told is Marines are always first. They go on the beaches first. And, and one more thing that I just thought of is, you know, each branch has their, their motto. Right. And for the Marine Corps, it's Semper Fidelis, which is always faithful. When I heard that, I was like, that's pretty badass. Yeah. So, so you'll hear it go, Semper Fi, Semper Fi. I'll be in a gym or something, you see a guy with a tattoo on him, Semper Fi. Wow. All right, so let's, uh, what do you remember about Vietnam day one? Like when you first get on the deck, so you're on the carrier, what was, you know, what it smell like? What it look like? What was the, what was your reaction day one? Well, there's different, two different types of day ones. You know, the day one when you're just flying ashore, and then day one you're flying a mission, you're flying an assault. Yeah. And so I remember the first assault, it's like, you know, it's like the ready room. So we, you know, we, we have dinner, five o'clock we're up, we're having breakfast. But after the dinner, I sat on the bow of the carrier and go, you know, the ship's going up and down, I said, all by myself. And all I just, I prayed not to live. I just prayed that if this was my last day, may I fly with courage. May I be the best I can be tomorrow. Because people are counting on me. That I cannot think about myself tomorrow. Tomorrow is about the team. And so I remember bobbing up and down on the bow of the carrier. Like, a, like you know, Spencer's father is a, cardiac surgeon, but he's teaching me how to meditate and do yoga and those other things which Marines don't do that much. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it was my meditation on the bow of the carrier. I go down, you can't sleep. Because, you know, so breakfast, six o'clock, the brief. But the thing I remember was walking across the flight deck, my co-pilot and I, two gunners and a staff sergeant crew chief. It's the most powerful feeling there is. I mean, this is it. They count on me, I, I better fly my ass off, and those guys better shoot their ass off, and the crew chief better keep the ammo flowing to us. You know, so that was my first, what I, I remember of that first day, and if we crossed the beach, you know, we were 27, I think we are 27 miles out at sea, and we're flying, we go feet wet, and as soon as we cross the beach, we go feet dry. And feet dry, we bank to the right, and there's two 46s, and a, and a stealth, and a 53 in front of us, and I'm flying above the beach, and I see these French chateaus. I'm going, holy shit. And what they were, it was called the French Indo-Chinese Riviera, because the French were there, and they, they got their butts kicked at Dien Bien Phu. And as I'm flying along the beach, looking at these French chateaus, I mean, beautiful, just beautiful mansions, all shot to shit, all burned out, you know, smoke coming from and all this, all the French are gone. And that's what I said to myself. <coughs> that was my teacher at the academy. That's why he had me read Marx, you know, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. Because I could see communism in front of me. That's what we're fighting for. We're fighting to prevent the communists from spreading to America. And so when I saw that, I said, so the history, I mean, the history and the lessons from the academy in New York came alive flying over that beach as I'm flight of two gunships are escorting these 46s and 53s into Way, 
And in a way, it was where the big battle was in 68, the Tet Offensive. So that's what I remember. We didn't, we didn't take fire or anything that day. But it was the first time we were at war. I what, was at war. What was the... Was your co-pilot, was he a savvy guy? Was he, had he been there before, or was he a new guy as well? Yeah, he was a captain. Uh, I won't mention his name, but he was pretty incompetent. You know, lieutenants think they're better than captains anyway. <laughs> 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 well, he, he was probably 28 years old. He couldn't fly for shit. Okay. <laughs> How about your crew? Your crew, your crew oh, crew I chief. love the crew. So you, did you have a good relationship with your crew chief and your yeah. gunners? I was my crew chief of Staff Sergeant Jackson from Mississippi. And he had the little, uh, you know, the, the really slick Marine goat, that little mustache, and the crew chiefs were these 18-year-old kids, you know, those fresh out of uh, camp. Yeah. And uh, the other thing is the first time we took fire was a couple, couple of missions later. We're flying into country because we're, we're prepping for Quang Tree. And so we're flying around doing reconnaissance and all this, looking at this I'm flying a general in the back. That's why we said General Miller. It was General Miller, one star. And we're surveying where we're going to fly in. And suddenly we start taking fire. I'm going, holy shit. And, you know, it, it looks like ketchup bottles coming up at you. You're going, holy shit. Oh, the shit. tracers. Yeah, all That's the tracer what it looks runs. Like. Now it's for real, you know. So I remember going, and then I froze. And Staff Sergeant Jackson who had been there before, taps me on the helmet, grabs my face mask and turns my head around. He says, hey, Lieutenant, I got bad news for you. I said, what's that? He says, only one of us is going home today. Either he goes home or we go home. But we're not, we're both not going home today. So you'd better think. You better start thinking fast. So these ketchup bottles are coming up. So I said, I haven't seen this before. Because, you know, at, at, at Camp Pendleton, you're only firing one way. Nobody's shooting at yeah, you. Yeah, you're not getting <laughs> shot at. So I said, we bank hard to the right and we turn. I said, I better think about this. I better think about this. Think, you know, think. And it, it, was, it was a 50 cal coming at us. And I hear we can't take a 50 cal hit. It might take a 30 cal, but a 50 cal will blow us out of the sky. And so I wanted to John Wayne it and go attack him, you know. And Jackson said, that shit, he didn't on his face. He says, Think. I said, think. I said, 50 cal. I got 30 cals. That's all I got. I got a couple of rockets. You know, we only had nine rockets or something. And But he's going to blow me out. His, his range was so far beyond my range. I had to get so close to him to shoot him. So he said, think. And I said, okay, got it. So I call up and I said, da-da-da, fire mission. I said, any fast movers in the area? And these Navy pilots come up and says, 2A Forest, this is Roger, fire mission for you. And the Air Forest rolled in on, on that fucker. Nice. <laughs> they, they took that 50 cal and blew the crap out of them. And so we're flying home, and Jackson says, Good, we're coming home See, tonight. Your staff, sergeant, your staff sergeant's got your back. Staff Sergeant Jackson, I love back. that guy to death, man. <laughs> Think. 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 This is only one of us is going home tonight, either you or him. But we're not both going home tonight. And that's what I'm trying to explain to Spencer is at those moments in time where you kind of mature, you know, you, you have to think under pressure. That's the hardest. Was that the first time in combat that you were legitimate under pressure? 
I was taking fire for the first time. That's the first time. So that was that was brand new to you. Yeah, yeah. And trying to just the staff sergeant. So he just rolls up, twists your helmet around, and just gives you some wisdom. Because he was was he calm? He was very calm. He was very calm. And 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 the gunners are looking at me. And they're eighteen and nineteen year old kids, and they're going, you know, they they, they want to go home too. <laughs> <laughs> so how was the conversation with staff sergeant after that mission? It's almost no conversation. It's just, this, is this what you saw, Spencer? There's unknowing. Yeah, we just kind of nodded at each other. You learned. Well, it's we all we know what to. We we're trained so well. You know, we strap in. There's a silence. There's not much chatter. It's not right. much talk. You, know? yep. you can hear the. You know, we had we had thirty cals on the M60s on the side, and then uh, nine nine rockets on each side for eighteen rockets. And the damn aircraft is so heavy; it doesn't fly. It doesn't fly. And so we're just in silence, working, and we're preparing. And then you then you hear the thing. You know, pilots manual planes, and. and Spencer, the aircraft is so heavy. You know, they say it, it, you lift it off. It doesn't lift off. We have to slide it. We hear this, the, you know, the skids screeching along the deck. And we're hoping to pick up enough speed. It's called translational lift. It's, it's when the airflow reverses through your blade, your rotor blades. And all of a sudden, the thing lifts. That's when that whop, 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 whop you hear. And the aircraft is now transitioning get off the carrier. And then we hit what's called the racetrack pattern at 15 above the carrier. There are six other ships in the, in the battle group, one carrier and six other ships. And we're flying this racetrack pattern. And meanwhile, the 46s and 53s are loading with troops. And they lift off and then we all assemble and the whole thing flies across the water. And that's when we're still feet wet. And then you can see the artillery from the Navy, from the destroyers, you know, pounding the thing. The B-52s are above, dropping arc lights. You know, arc light means they just open the bomb bay door. There's no precision bombing. It's just, we just dump the load right here, and the whole thing goes up in smoke, you know. And they, then the Army Cobras come in alongside of us to escort us in because we had to get those. There are, there are South Vietnamese Marines. South Vietnamese Marines, they weren't U.S. Marines. And we had to insert them into the LZ. And that's what I'm talking to Spencer about. You have to have situational awareness. You can't just think about yourself. You have to know what everybody else is doing, different codes, different frequencies, different command, different commanding officers. You know what I mean? It's just a gaggle fuck. So there's, there's a lot. So there, how many escort gunships would there be? We we had marine we had four escorts but there were like six cobras armies alongside. Okay, us. and then how many forty sixes and fifty threes? Uh, generally about twelve and six, twelve forty sixes. That's a lot of aircraft. Those were huge. That's a big package. It was the, no, it was the battle for Quang Tree. Okay, the second battle for Quang Tree, and that's when just yesterday was kind of the fiftieth anniversary, because I write about this in my latest book called the Capitalist Manifesto. We're coming in, but this was the change. This is the biggest change of all. Technology, the Viet Cong now had the SA-7, the Strela. And the SA-7 was a handheld heat seeker, like a, like a sidewinder. That They didn't need any training, Spencer. They didn't have to go to flight school. They didn't have to, take, they didn't have to go to the target range. You just ran out there, pulled the trigger, 
this little rocket comes flying up, it tracks your, your heat exhaust, and goes up your tailpipe. So what we had to do is we're coming in at 1,500 feet. We had to drop to treetop or defilade, they call it. We're now this whole massive movement of all these aircraft, Army and Navy and Marine Corps, we're coming in at treetop level. It's twice as spooky. Communications have, that's how, you know, how much a stickler on communications. You don't just leave a, con, you know, if I can say zero, zero, you got to, got it, welcome, got it. You know, the clicks, it's, it's, it's instant, communication is instant. We're coming in. But the SA-7 forced us, technology forced us to drop to 50, from 1,500 above AK-47 level down to treetop. This 53 pilot, I didn't know him that well, but something happened to him. He couldn't take the fire. And he popped. That's only my, my roommate became a three-star. Jack Bergman, he's a congressman on northern Michigan right now. So Bergman, Bergman was a 46 pilot. We see this 53 go, he panicked. That's the only thing I can suspect. Air ballast is low. And you see this little white puff of smoke. And this little rocket comes up, turns right, up his tailpipe. 62 South Vietnam Marines die. Just so the only two people that got out were the two pilots. And then uh, this is, I think you understand this. We didn't let him fly anymore. This guy had lost it. So he'd walk around the carrier mumbling to himself. He's trying to explain what happened. The fact was, Jack, he fucked up. Panic. You know, you, you didn't, you weren't cool under pressure. You killed a lot of people. So Jack, who's Jack Bergman, who's a three-star and a congressman now, he called me and says, 50th anniversary, I went, something like that. I went, got it. But that's the band of brothers. The experience is so intense, you can't, unless you're there, you don't understand it. So we took a hammering. Was it was that normal? Was it consistent? Uh, you know, under fire missions, or was that kind of the anomaly? Like, were you guys you guys consistently like seventy because you got there in seventy two? You arrived, so the momentum had at this point historically shifted more towards the NVA and the VC. So they were more or less on the offense. Is that safe to say? No, what happened is the socialist press turned against us. I don't know if you guys are too young to remember, but there's a picture of this uh, South Vietnamese colonel or something. He's blowing the brains out of a VC. Smith and Wesson 38. <laughs> but uh, that, that got played. Then there was Me Lai with William Calley. And there was atrocity after atrocity. And I remember one day I was, I was in Way because we lost Way in 68 during Tet. And I'm talking to a South, Marine, South Vietnamese Marine major. And he says, your press killed you guys. That was Walter Cronkite and the Evening News and all this stuff. Today we'd call it CNN. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it's so liberal left-leaning. And I still remember clearly my co-pilot and I walking around Wei because Wei was once the ancient capital of Vietnam. Beautiful. 
I mean, it was so tragic, Spencer. These are beautiful, ancient temples and buildings, and you know. And so my my co-pilot and I are just kind of playing tourists for the day. And uh, we're walking along, and all of a sudden we got caught in a cross, small arms crossfire. So we dive into this ditch. It was full of shit. So we're covered with shit. And we're lying down there. And you can, you can hear the And I, I lean over to him. I said, hey, Joe, uh, did you bring the gun? He goes, no, it's your turn to carry the gun. What do you mean it's my turn to bring the gun? It's your turn to bring the gun. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're here, two Marine lieutenants, completely unarmed. And we're arguing with each other because the carrier was four stories high. So to te- check out your 38 special, you have to hike down four flo- floors, check out the 38 special. So, I got it. so you're walking around Hue City, right? With unarmed. Unarmed. But I caught you had the gun. No, you had the gun. <laughs> what the shit? <laughs> like this is, this is real. That's how, that's how screwed up we were. There's a quick, uh, quick sidebar story. My old... Uh, karate instructor back in the day he was a grunt vietnam 19 and i believe it was 1969 and he is in his he fit in the marine corps perfectly and he was telling me what they would do so him and one of his buddies they would get their 45s and they would sneak out of the wire after you know mission set was over patrol was over they got back they would get their 45s throw on civilian clothes and sneak out the wire and go to the local bars yeah and he said, you sit at the bar because they, they walk in and they know they're Marines. They're American. It's obvious. And you could tell because also at the bar were VC guys. Yes. And they look at each other yes. down the bar, but they're not there to fight. They're like, we want to have some drinks. Yes. And you literally, he's like, I look down the bar and there's VC dudes and they kind of like tip of the yes. cap, like a little bit of like, hey, bro, we'll see you tomorrow kind of thing. And Can you imagine that? And they so, drink. So they're at the bar. There's VC guys, literally three seats down from him. They know who the you know each each who they are. All right. So like tomorrow we're gonna fight each other, but today we're gonna have some beers. Yeah. And then they would. The craziest thing is, so they get shit faced, and they would sneak back in the wire. I mean, there's Constantino wire, barbed wire, machine gun nest. You know, sandbags. Like you don't just sneak back into a right. marine base, but they would do that. But he said, when you look down the bar and you saw the VC guys, they look at you, and there's a little bit of a... It's a camaraderie. Yeah. Kind of. It's like, hey, we nodded each other. Yeah. See you tomorrow. So it's like <laughs> that same, almost that same Feeling. brotherhood yep. brotherhood connection and somewhat of that mutual respect. It's a respect. Gotcha. That That's tomorrow. amazing. And the fact that everyone's like, I'd rather drink beer right now yeah. than <laughs> any other bullshit. We'll, get, we'll work on the other stuff tomorrow. Yeah, we'll... So. But there's a respect. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I never would have thought. Did and, you get? They didn't wear uniforms. We had to, so that's why it was. But you can tell they're Americans versus the VC stood out just because of you could tell in their eyes. Mm. What did you notice? Like, how how could you pick out a VC from just a you it's know local? Just who they are. There's a bearing to them. You know, yeah. At the academy, call it. You have to have a bearing to. Which is a beingness to you, and they're there, they're 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 there to fight. But tonight we're drinking. <laughs> and he told me that story. I was like, "You are crazy, bro! Yeah. Like sneaking back into base, shit faced, right? 
Yeah. They're laughing and joking. They got their 45s and they're sneaking back into base. I'm like, you could have got shot. I mean, just shenanigans. But he said that was one of the ways they kept themselves mentally together. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. You had to kind of, guys had their, you know, their ways of kind of cutting loose in a way. And that was what they would do. What did you guys do to kind of? Well, that's what that's where I, I kind of got into business was in Vietnam. Talking about 45s. See, the, all the, there was seven Navy ships, one carrier, six Navy. And most of the crew enlisted, a lot of them were Filipinos because the way you got to be a U.S. citizen, you joined the Navy for 20 years. You become. And so <clears throat> one day I bought this 45. At the, I, go to, I was a, I'm in Marble Mountain. I go to this room, and the room is full of captured weapons. I'm going, holy shit, man. I like weapons. You know, those AKs, those French... There's 45s, there's M1 carbines, you know, all the captured stuff. So I, I talked to the staff sergeant there, and the army guy, and I said, can I buy some? He says, for the right price. <laughs> so he was selling me 45s for five bucks. Oh, my gosh. Jeez. So I buy, I buy this 45, and I fly back to my carrier, and it's sitting in my room. And this, the Filipino guy is a great guy. And he walks in and goes, ah, 45. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, he's not the. He's probably what five foot one. He picked up that forty five. He becomes John Wayne. <laughs> he goes. So I got into the business of selling forty fives. So you sold forty fives oh on the that. ship. I'd fly. Oh, that was one of my problems. So I'd fly ashore. I'd buy all the forty fives, and I take them back to the ship. Oh my gosh. And, and my commanding officer comes up to me and says, I know what you're up to. That's illegal. I said, and you will go to jail. You keep selling 45s to, you shouldn't be doing that. So okay. what was, so you bought them for five bucks. What was yeah. the markup? What were the margins? 45, $45. I have to make 45 bucks, 45 for 45. So you bought it for five, sold it for 45. Yeah. That's pretty good margins. And yeah. then I switched my 38 special because after I got caught in that shit ditch, unarmed yeah i said it was just because i didn't want walk down the four flights of stairs pick up my five bullets and go back up to the carrier so my co-pilot and i joe we call him gentleman joe he said, okay why don't we just carry a captured weapon that we don't have to check it in so i bought an m3 machine gun you know the grease gun the tank gun so i i'm flying out there i'm unarmed except for this i have an m3 grease gun behind me sitting behind my seat and my critic, the colonel, comes up again and says, I know what you're up to. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a nickname? Huh? Did you have a nickname? Did they oh, call it? Just Keo. You just know. Keo. Yeah. Okay, Keo. They called you Keo. I know what you're up to. I said, look, if I'm coming out, if I'm, you know, if I get knocked down, I'm coming out with a, you know, full auto submachine gun. Yeah. It's a grease gun, they call them. And the other, your, your issued weapon was a 38 Special? <laughs> I could, what am I going to do? Hit the, throw, the, throw it at the guy? Wow. Six rounds. No, only five. Five. They didn't trust us. And we couldn't load the gun with to put it in our pocket. Oh, my gosh. So it only holds six, but they got five. Because they don't trust Marines. So Jesus. you only get five rounds. Jeez. <laughs> it was almost like that old, there was an old TV show about Barney Fife or something. He, he had one bullet. He had, he had a, a six-round 38 special, but he only gave him one bullet. <laughs> it was almost that funny. It was, yeah, you know, it's we sit there laughing because you have to laugh. Sure. It was so ridiculous. Why not give us six? Well, regulations say you only get five. 
And then pretty soon we said, well, let's create regulations. We just stopped checking them out. And I, then I got into the gun running business, but this is where I made my biggest amount of money. So my, current, my lieutenant colonel, again, good guy, you know, he goes, Kiyosaki, cut it out. I know what you're up to. I said, jeez, my business is gone, you know. But they tell all of these guys, I said, okay, the, the Filipinos like the 45. What do the rest of the guys like? And one day, that same guy, Staff Sergeant Jackson, I see him walk along Da Nang Beach. He's got this big basket, bamboo basket, and he's picking up shrapnel. I go, Jackson, what are you up to? And Jackson says, ah, 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 Jackson. You don't do anything you're gonna, unless you're going to make money. What business are you in? He says, ah, ah, ah. He says, I said, Jackson, if you don't tell me, I'm not going to fly that crap back. He goes, okay, 50-50. I said, 50-50. So, <laughs> Make a deal. So the deal was, this is the best deal of all. He was picking up shrapnel and putting it into these baskets. And I said, what do you do with it? He says, well, I have agents on different ships. So every time that you're flying, I'm dropping off these baskets, and they're selling the shrapnel for a buck. They're selling scrap metal for a buck a piece. Who are they selling it to? All the sailors and marines. Oh, they just want a little piece of they want a souvenir, the war. a little piece of the war. Oh wow, a buck. We made two thousand bucks in a week. Holy cow! We were at high speed because the other guys caught on. The forty-six pilots could carry more than oh, we yeah, could so they, carry. You had some competition. <laughs> yeah, some well, competition. The, 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 the heavy haulers, you know, yeah. they they could load twenty of those things on. We could only load like five. So we had all set up. And we I, flying ashore, Jackson, all these guys picking up their shrapnel. And we'd fly. We hit all the ships. We hit it to our distributors. We got 50 cents per shrapnel. The other guy got 50 cents. We made 2,000. We almost about 4,000 pieces or something like that. I said, holy. And we are being paid $200 a month. I was selling scrap metal. So you were, a, you were an illegal gun runner. You ran guns. And, you, but when they said you were illegal, I said, okay, I'll cut that out. Okay, so you closed that business down. Was that your first official business? Was but selling, I kept my M3 grease gun. So you kept that. Was that your first actual business, was selling 45s for 45 bucks? That's not bad. No. That's, and it seems like it was pretty successful. <laughs> that's a, those are good but margins. the market expanded because the Filipinos are the only guys buying the 45s. The white guys are the American sailors. Had no interest. Yeah. So my market expanded to every sailor on all these ships. And then the, and those damn 46 pilots and 53 pilots, we had to beat them to the market. Yeah. Because <laughs> they could carry tons. They could carry way more shrapnel. <laughs> I know. Holy cow. Selling, selling scrap So metal. this the entrepreneurial blood, is it's, you've had that. Well, I didn't have any money. You know, I keep telling Spencer, I said, you know, your, your mom and daddy give you money. Not having money is an advantage. If you're born poor, you have to hustle. You know, I got nothing. That's why I had to go to the academy because my dad said to me, I'm, I'm not going to pay for your education. I mean, just because I flunked out of high school twice is no reason not to send me to college. <laughs> but he says, you're, you're not, you're not going to make it in school. You're already flunking out. So that's why I was going to join the Army at 18 to fly on the warrant officer program to fly helicopters for them. But that's when I had to cut a deal with the dove with my dad. He says, you, you get through college. I said, but you're not paying for my education. He says, you'll figure it out. And I did. I said, so I applied to, you know, Naval Academy wanted me and Merchant Marine Academy wanted me. You, although my grades were horrible, my SAT is really high, and I captained my football team. Okay. 
And you got kicked out of high school? Twice. Twice. Because I can't write. And it's not that I can't write. The teacher didn't like what I was writing. Okay. And so same as Rich Dad, Poor Dad, New York Times said, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, most of the academic types, you know, the academic elite today, well, they came out of the Vietnam era into our school system and they infected the kids. So these journalists and editors, you know, 80% of all journalists are Democrats. You know, they have, they're liberals. I, I, I don't, you, you can be a liberal, you can be a, I don't really care. But it does affect the way you look at the world. So the New York Times and the uh, editors of the um, book publishing companies, when I said your house is not an asset and rich dad, poor dad, savers are losers and rich don't work for money. I got these reject notices from the publishing. You don't know what you're talking about. And then today, rich dad, poor dad is selling more books. This is 25 years later. We're selling more books than ever before. Really? Why do you think that is? Well, because this fake pandemic is making us rich. I mean, it's, I'm not saying that the, the pandemic is real, but I talked to uh, Spencer's dad and all that. He's a little suspicious about it. Yeah. And, and everybody is, is, you know, how did the CDC fund Wuhan? Why did Fauci work for Wuhan? Gotcha. You know what I mean? But you can't say anything. So I say nothing, but... It also occurred, COVID came out when there was a crash in the repo market. The repo market is a repurchase market or the shadow banking system. So September 17, 2019, I'm sitting there watching it. The repo market goes from 0% to 10%. That means it was crashing. So that was September 17, 2019. And I go, wow, that's interesting. Because the last time that happened was 2008. Uh-huh. That was a subprime crash. Sure. So I'm sitting there with my partner, Kenny McElroy, and I was sitting there watching this stuff, and he goes, something's going to happen. COVID appeared. So I'm still a little suspect, if you know what I mean. It's, it's a way of divert the crash of our economic system. Okay. I, and I have, I have had COVID. I mean, um, Spencer's dad pulled me out, with, not with a vaccine, with hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine, I believe. Yeah, the same old, the, the same old stuff they've been using for years. They didn't just Ex- give you Motrin like uh, back in the day. Give you a horse pill of Motrin and just. Uh, but by the way, it was there was no special thing to it. Mm-hmm. So his father pulls me out. He says, "Take a walk, get some sunlight, take some vitamin C." All right. Right. Yeah, and here you are, yeah. perfectly but fine. Your dad can't say anything, which he shouldn't, because they'll come after him. Definitely. Yeah, he has to be careful. Okay. He's, well, let's get, uh, you know, let's get back on track. Right. <laughs> we are on track. <laughs> Honest, I have a fun, fun fact here. So going back to like how when we first met, we were just bullshitting. I, uh, in my little world, I always connect with dudes who are, if you look at my circle of friends, my closest people to me, they fall under the little bit of the rough and tumble crowd. What was that? They're a little bit more of the rough and tumble crowd. You know, some guys that have been in some trouble before. Yeah, and okay. but these are the best people on the planet. They are, I mean, they will go to bat for you. The absolute best humans on the planet, and uh, they're not afraid to get their hands dirty to back up a friend or a family member. And I didn't know you were kicked out of high school twice, but fun fact is, 
did you graduate high school? Yes, Spencer. Okay, I did, cool. Yep. So, so two of the three of us at this table have been kicked out of high school, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm just the list of kind of like similarities <laughs> is is getting you know longer. I'm like, okay, now I understand why we get along so well. Yeah. All right, and yeah. selling selling freaking forty fives. That's awesome. So, did you just chuck your? You just kept the forty five and said to hell with the thirty eight special. So, when you went on missions, you took your forty five. Explain like a aircraft carrier but um, there's a big ship you go down four flights of floors yeah. you check out this you got to stand in line with other pilots and make you sign this little document give you this five bullets you cannot load your gun got to put the five bullets in your pocket then you hike all the way back up end of the mission you hike all the way down you got to stand in line again check in your five bullets and your gun and go back up and i said the hell with this and then i started making money there was a so on last cruise i went on was 2017 2018 we were on the teddy roosevelt and our squadron SOP for weapons. So when you fly a mission, you carry an M9, and you can carry up to four magazines, 15-round magazines. Well, we had a safe in the ready room with the M9s and the ammo. That's where you kept them. And the guy on duty. What's, made, what's the M9? Uh, nine millimeter. It's the bread of nine millimeter. Oh, oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So we had a bread of nine mil. And so you just walk up, get your mags, get your rounds. You sign a little thing, say, hey, I got my mags, my rounds, my weapon, and the ODO, whoever the guy on duty is, cool. I saw you get your stuff, and then you go out to your jet and you fly your mission. It was different at the Navy squadrons. Oh, Very what? different. The Na- so the Navy guys had it very different. Their rounds were actually taped in plastic bags and then duct tape around them, and they were kept in a completely separate room than the actual weapons themselves. And it was just like, man... This is so. In order to actually get your ammunition out, if you needed to use it, you needed like a box cutter to cut open all the plastic and tape wrapped around them to put them in your weapon in case you needed it. And some guys are like, <laughs> kind of like you back in the day, like this is so much of an ass pain. I'm not even bringing these things. Um, it was just a, it's a different culture, but you know what I'm talking about. Okay. So and it, it sounds ridiculous too. just hearing. It's, it. I yeah, mean, the, you're, like you're... you speak to a reasonable human who's got. A, a novice level of common sense and you're like well you're gonna go into central syria where there's a lot of bad guys and your rounds are going to be taped up in duct tape <laughs> and and plastic. hard to get yeah, yeah. Difficult and i'm like man get. that's that nah i'm gonna hold i'm gonna pass on that one i think i'm gonna start selling 45s like robert you know that is so interesting so but, but this is the other thing i want to question you about i had a 38 went to the 45 and went back to the nine miller at the beretta but what was the transition from the 38 to the 45 happened during the Spanish-American War? Because in the Philippines, a 38 could not stop a Filipino. So they had to shift to the 1911 because the 45 hits you at a rate of like a six-ton truck going at 200 miles an hour. And so when they shifted to the 9mm, it doesn't have a stopping power of a 45. And so the, one of the reasons the Filipinos just adored that 45 because it could kill them. And this 9mm, the question, I, I don't think it, you know, like when there were, the Marines were fighting in Korea, a lot of times the bullets didn't go through the, the uh, heavy down vests. So that, that, that was my question on the 9mm. I said, why did they shift to that? When the 45 was the biggest, has the most stopping power, you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you get hit with that, you're finished. So that's why I carried a 45 and the M3 grease gun, the tank gun, 
because it was a stopping power and firepower. It wasn't about disobeying the rules. It was, I wanted to live. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, more, more rounds, bigger gun, good things happen. So let's, I got a couple more questions because sure. we're, we're finished. We're at like the sixth inning right now. So we got 20 minutes left. Humor is something that keeps people, when it, it connects people, it keeps you sane. You know, some of the, the guys who have the ability to tap into their sense of humor under the most stressful circumstances are some of the most fun people I've ever met. So how prevalent was humor in like the day-to-day life when you guys were in Vietnam? Well, you said the word insanity. If you can't laugh, you're finished. Because it was so screwed up. Wars, I mean, military screwed up enough, but being in a war zone is more screwed up because you've got generals, admirals, Air Force guys, and they're all trying to run the show. And meanwhile, we're just we're little pawns on the, on the carrier. And so, uh, there we go again. So you had also talked about your first mission. That was memorable. Was there any other missions that really stuck out that, you know, maybe you replay your mind on occasion even today? Well, when we're talking about it at, um, at the airport when yeah. I first met you, one of the funniest things was we we're, we're all tax. We're at Da Nang. Oh, gosh. This, we're taxiing out. <laughs> we're taxiing out. I forgot out. about this. This is going to fly this mission. We're going, okay, everybody's ready. The gunships are ready. The 46s are ready. The Jolly Greens are ready. What's holding us up? He says, well, the 53 ahead of me has no pilot in it. So, you know, where the fuck's the pilot? I won't mention his name. But... We look out on the runway on the grass median out there. There's this little white butt going up and down. <laughs> He's getting laid. <laughs> so he holds up. Captain was Charlie. Captain Charlie was getting laid, and he holds up a whole mission. So we're sitting there, and everybody's yelling and screaming. You can't hear him because the engines are so loud. And you see this little white butt sitting in the middle of the green field. You go, this is America at war. <laughs> <laughs> so he eventually, you know, how'd the mission go? I don't remember. Who cared after that? Oh, we're, we're laughing the whole time. That's awesome. Saying, it, it can't get worse than this. <laughs> you know I mean? Oh, the other thing, I, should, I won't mention his name, but that we heard a few years later, because I'm you know, 50 years or so, is that he died. So at a squadron reunion we, with my, th- my three-star general roommate, Bergman, he says, let's have a ceremony for Charlie. So we had a ceremony for Charlie. And then a few years later, with another reunion, Charlie showed up. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so General Bergman, Jack, comes up and he goes, don't ask him where he's been, okay? <laughs> he's the same little white butt sitting on the runway. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make that stuff no, up. No, you can't. No, you can't. Hilarious. That's the stuff that the shenanigans, you know? The shenanigans category is, gosh, that's significant. That's awesome. That's <laughs> what kept us alive. The guy was dead that came back to life, came back to the reunion, and he said, he's alive? He says, yeah, this is three star. You know, to make one star is hard. Yeah. Two stars tough. To be a winger and make three stars. That's almost impossible. So he comes up to this gentleman. Please don't ask Charlie where he's been, okay? <laughs> Charlie's <laughs> with us again. He's back. 
And you guys yeah. do, is it Miami? You do the reunion this one? Yes, yes, November okay. 10th, November 11th. That's, uh, oh, that's awesome. Is the, uh, so when you got out, you got out 70, what year did you get out officially? 74. I, I wasn't released. I was kicked out again. <laughs> so the Marine Corps gave you a non-negotiable, uh, What's that? a non-negotiable contract, essentially? Well, I don't know what it was. It was, they were happy to see me go and I was happy to leave. What, uh, how'd that go down? Well, that was one of my happier times is because I couldn't get laid. You know what I mean? We had no hair. And all these, all these guys had long hair. So the women knew. So we, finally, my co-pilot and I would go into the bars and we'd say, you want to go for a helicopter ride? And if they said yes. Well, so we'd, we'd lift off from Kaneohe Marine Corps Air Station. And the Air Force, it was Bellows Air Force Base right next door to it. Those guys, their, their security is really lax. So we'd, we'd, we'd have the women drive on board to the Air Force Base because they, they were chicks and so flag them through. And we'd land, at, we'd land at the Air Force Base and pick up these women and fly to deserted islands with cases of beer. And I thought I, like are you, right? Honestly, this is, this is your like, boss. This is yeah, your boss. Right like I thought I died yeah. and went to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't get any See? better than this. Oh, that's what I love. I love my, so, anyway, so, so this is when it ended was that so I'm flying back in, if you know Hawaii, I'm flying from Kahoalavi, which is a deserted island, beautiful beach, the best beautiful beaches in Hawaii. So I'm flying back in, we drop the women off at Bellows, and then we, we come, it's only like a two minute run to Kaneohe, the Marine Corps Air Station. I come taxiing up, and the M, three MP cars circle the aircraft. But they waited till I shut the thing down. So one, you know, once you crack the once you crack the throttle, you're finished. It's not going to restart again. So I crack the throttle. Cars pull up. MPs come up. Guns drawn. They open the door of my my Huey. The first thing that fell out were beer cans. <laughs> oh my gosh! Dude. The the second that thing that fell out was me. <laughs> I didn't have my, I didn't have my Nomex flight suit on. I had purple swimming trunks and slippers. They open up the back door. There's a dead deer sitting back there. What the sh- you shot? A, you shot a deer? Of course. I mean, there's a lot of deer out there. <laughs> and they find a cooler full of the beer I didn't drink and women's underwear. So I was in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Holy cow. So I was put under house arrest, which wasn't bad because my apartment, my condo was in Waikiki Beach. Uh, I was in I was in heaven. Yeah, it's yeah. So I'm I'm under house arrest in Waikiki Beach. And my my little uh, I call him a snuffy, you know, my little lance corporal. He says, "Sir, they found all I was falsifying records. I, I was doing everything, flight times and all this, you know, because I wasn't burning any fuel. You know, when you fly and you shut down and you drink and you have sex, you're not burning much fuel." Right. So they said, you, you're logged out for a 3.0, but you only burned 20 minutes of fuel. Yeah. Where were you on this date? Where were you on this date? Where you? And that's where I realized how smart the JAG is. The judges, those are smart dudes. So I was in serious trouble. Sure. And so I'm sitting there, I'm lying through my teeth, and the, the, the prosecutor was a guy named Captain Abrams. Man, he, one of the sharpest, smartest guys I've ever met. He goes, 
So finally, I just gave up. Yeah, you weren't exactly covering your tracks that well, though. I mean, well, I'm not. I'm a marine. I'm not smart enough to you cover. Got, you got <laughs> beer cans and panties yeah, in the back of your helo. <laughs> I mean, so anyway, I call up Captain Abrams. I'm I'm in Waikiki and Connie, who is on the other side of the island. So Captain Abrams, I'm coming in. He goes, "It's about time, Lieutenant." So I come walking in there and said, "He says." I went, I said, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Fully deposed me. He says, do you want an attorney? I said, no, sir. He was, he was a captain. I was a civil lieutenant. You know. So I sat down. He says, on this date, did you do this? Said, yes, sir. Did you do this? I told him everything. I held nothing back. At the, it was three and a half hours, I think, of deposition. So I looked at him and said, I said, Captain, uh, I guess I'm going to go to jail. He goes, no, you're free. Give me an honorable. What? So if I could leave a message to everybody out here today that's saying the truth shall set you free, it's one of the most powerful statements I've ever known. So you owned it. You took ownership of everything. Yeah. I, I held Nothing back. And so when I said, so I guess I'm going to go to jail, you know, and all this stuff. He goes, no, thank you for telling the truth. You'll be discharged on June 4th, 1974. Wow. That, uh, that could have gone a different way. So that's why I think you... With Spencer, when you work with me, I'm a stickler for just tell me the truth. I, I, I don't want to play 20 guesses. You know? Yeah, yeah. Just tell me, handle it. It's a really valuable lesson there, though. What's that? There's a really valuable lesson there, for sure. Yeah. And then I figured out being a Marine Huey pilot, we don't have good memories anyway. So I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't keep the story straight. Oh, my God. How, would you, how many missions did you go party in the jungle? I mean, was this a every week? 22. Oh, my. 22? And you got caught on the last one. No, no, no. I, but they, was, had, they had collected all the records. No, I had. No, I had. No, this is, I was in Hawaii now. In, in Vietnam, I was 22. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I got caught in Vietnam, too, for. Um, wait, wait, wait. Hang on. You were doing this in Vietnam also? Of course. Holy shit. <laughs> oh, my God. The best business I ever had. And. Was there's no women on the carrier, so I'd pick up hookers. <laughs> Holy cow! Fly them, fly them to a warship, make a few bucks, and fly them, fly them back. So you were also a pimp, of course. <laughs> so you were oh the resume, resume bullets here, <laughs> For real, right? I mean, yeah. this is stuff that. I mean, your face right now. You're I didn't like, even know any of like that. I, remember, part, I, I yeah. knew when we were, when we first met. I'm like, you guys. I know this guy's got stories you guys don't know, but I didn't know you were a gun smuggling pimp <laughs> slash shrapnel drug salesman. dealer and all I this. Mean, stuff. Holy I just God. don't do drugs. <laughs> wow. I mean, there's some. It, it, it's not surprising that you've gotten into all, all the different businesses, and you know, like, it's. Are you surprised at all? In any I way? mean, no. It doesn't surprise me that you were doing all of that based on where you are now 
and what you've accomplished. I've, cor- it, I've corrected hard, haven't I? Yes, yes. And but it seems like you've always had that just ability to create money or wealth or a business. So how from, did you, what was your first mission when you got out of the Marine Corps? You know, they, everyone needs a new mission. You've got to have something to focus on. Oh, I was, that's a cash flow quadrant in the book. You know, there's four people in business. E is employee. S stands for self-employed small business. B stands for big business, 500 employees or more. And I stands for inside investors. So Spencer was on a call this morning. We're discussing what insiders in the stock market do. You know, I mean, the, the money is made long before the stock goes public. Before the IPO, the money is already made. Those are insiders. And so when, when I met Spencer, he came to work with me. Your mom wanted you to get a 401k. Yep. Did you hear what I said at the end of our call? This is just this point. What did I say about the 401k? You're just very, very uh, against 401ks because it'll, uh, I forget exactly uh, what you said. I'll but. tell you exactly what I think. 401k is the asshole of the dog. Oh, yes. How could I forget That's what you told that? his mom. Shit comes out. Yeah. Okay. Told, yeah, he because told me. And then. as an insider, I've already made my money long before it becomes a stock. Gotcha. So your mission was finance. You got into finance. No, I was just going to be an entrepreneur. I was going to be a capitalist. Okay. You know, my, my poor dad was a Marxist. He didn't know it. You know, most school teachers are Marxists. They don't, they don't know it. They're good people, but they believe in equality and treating people equally. You know, that doesn't work. And <clears throat> job security and mm-hmm. charity and all the good things. But I, I'm a capitalist. I want to make money without money. I guess. One of the things I wanted to pick on just for a minute was the time when you were homeless, right? So you and Kim were living in a car yep. and you had the opportunity to not be homeless and you said no to it. So that's a, you, you consciously chose the more difficult path for a reason. What was exactly. that reason? Exactly. So why did you do that? Cause that is, well, most the, people can't fathom that. But it's also the Marine Corps way. You can't handle the pain and you give in to it, you've lost. You've got to go through that pain. I was listening to Matthew McConaughey, you know, the actor. Yeah. He says every so often he goes for 21 days to be with himself, to go through the pain. Your father, Spencer's dad, says the same thing. It's 21 days. He says you go through the pain of being with you. That's that's why, you know, I love the Marine Corps and all that because you know, the saying was, suck it up, buttercup. Yep. You know, oh, you're in pain? Good, we'll put more onto you. So pain, no gain. There's a lot of truth to that, but it's the self-pain. It's a self-discipline. Do you know, um, as the saying says, knowledge is important, but character is power. And a lot of people don't have the character and I'm always blessed going to the military school in New York and the Marine Corps and being a total fuck-up. But it built character. So you knew the difficulty would pay off. There would be dividends from the difficulty you sure. experienced. Well, you just look at the obvious. You know, if you go to, you go to the gym, you go through the pain, you get healthier. Mm-hmm. If I don't go to the gym and I sit and eat pizza, I get fat and hoggy. So most people, so that one way is they, they drown the pain in the pizza or you go to the gym and you face the pain. It's called discipline. 
I dig it. Yeah. I, I dig it. Yeah. All right. So Bethan McConaughey was saying this morning, I was going, he says, you got to face the pain of being you. Be alone with yourself. Don't drink. Don't do this. You know, just be with the pain. So Spencer's dad says it's 21 days. Do you know what he says about that 21 days? Well, I know that he says with the 21 days, that's how long it takes your brain to break that neuroplasticity and kind of, you know, actually make significant change. Yeah. Gotcha. So, you know, I was, I was, I was pushing 300 pounds, you know, back down to 190. But it was because of his dad that he says you got to face that. So I, I do every, about once or twice a year, I do a 21-day cleanse with... Um, his dad's new girlfriend, Nicole, Dr. Nicole, but I'm facing the pain. And, you know, it's like, you know, like at, when I was at the academy, you do 10 push-up, but the last two are for character. So when you hit, when you hit the 10, you go two more for character. You got to do one for the commandant, right? You always got to do an extra pull-up for the commandant. You go further. And what, what I, and one of the best lessons I had was I used to collect rent for my rich dad. Some 12 years old going around Hawaii, you know, knocking on doors, oh, your rent's overdue, rent's overdue. Nicest people, really nice people. They had jobs and all that. You could hear the TV going in the background. He said, yeah, well, this happened to me and this happened. They always had an excuse. But they wouldn't go through the pain. You know, that's why I love Nicholson and a few good men. You want the truth. You can't handle the truth. And so I'm always encouraging Spencer, because it's more military than business. I said, I want to build character. You know, it's a few good men, Semper Fi, that's all character. And what a person wants through life is can I keep testing myself to improve my character? And when my character improves, life's improved. Okay. It's a strong uh, segue into the, the ninth inning. We're in the ninth inning. So we're going to finish this up because you got a meeting with yeah, somebody important. Governor. The governor here in 30 minutes. So <laughs> Spencer and I are going to get out of here. But, uh, well, first off, we're going to finish off. Just uh, I want to say thanks for both you guys for help making this happen. And I've never been grateful for my flight being delayed three hours. But yeah. that day that we ran into each other at the airport, I was cursing uh, a certain airline a lot. And then it all worked out, you know, a little bit of divine movement going on there, I would say. So, yeah. Spence, thanks for the coordination for helping set this oh, yeah, up. Absolutely. You and Sarah have been awesome. Yeah, no, as soon as, I, as soon as I saw the connection that you guys had, I was like, this has to happen because you guys could have such a great conversation. And, and this there is, is there's, and we're, we're drinking water right now. We're drinking spring water. Uh, yeah. No beer. The real story it. comes out. Right, yeah, that's, right. that's the what, actual yeah. truth. The sugar starts coming up, you know. So, but uh, thank you. And Sarah, thanks for helping set this up. Really appreciate it. So, uh, Robert, at this point, thanks for taking the time. Oh, it's no, awesome. thank you. I, I love having a blast kicking it with old school guys and just hearing stories. And I, and I know this is like the tip of the iceberg of stories, you know. And I would love to take the time now to give you the floor and just. If there is, you already hit on some really good lessons, uh, some cool segues, things people can take with them. But if there was something that you apply in your business world today, because that is the majority of what you do now, if there was a Marine Corps lesson learned or something you took away from your training, your combat experience, anything, your time as a Marine, 
that you apply in your business world. Talk about that for a second. Well, it's really been interesting because you can ask Sarah, my producer here, what happened the last few days? I'm running into Marine after Marine after Marine. And then I was in Belize before, um, right after I met you. No, but before I met you. And I was doing a talk on my new book coming out. It's called The Capitalist Manifesto. And it's about how we fight communism taught in our schools by teaching capitalism at home. And the book starts with a quote by a guy named Edmund Burke. He says, uh, for evil to persist, good men do nothing. Something like that. There's a lot of evil going on in the world today, and it's called Marxism. You can see it everywhere. You know, I mean, black, I'm, not, I'm not anti-black, but Black Lives Matter is Marxist. Critical race theory has its foundation in Marxism. So I've watched this all those years, starting from the academy when I was a, aware, reading um, Das Kapital by uh, Marx. Um, was it, was that? Anyway, I, can, my, I have a Biden moment here. But studying the great tyrants of the world, like Marx, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, they're coming after us, and you can see it. You know, Trump puts up, I'm not, you know, Trump's a good friend of mine, but I'm not a Republican or Democrat. Trump puts a border wall, and Biden opens the border up. Are you kidding me? What the hell are you doing? You know, Trump says something, he gets censored by the Kremlin at Silicon Valley. So my way of saying is that it goes to that saying, death before dishonor. If I said nothing, I would die. So I wrote this book, Capitalist Manifesto. I'm launching it on November 10th, the Marine Corps birthday in Miami. Nice. Good day and for so it. And so it is to encourage all military servers, first responders like police and firefighters and EMT guys and all that, all the guys who have to operate under pressure. We're under pressure right now. I don't need any more snowflakes out there. You know, schools are putting out snowflakes who are politically correct and trigger events. and makes me sick. makes me sick. So Capitalist Manifesto. So the book opens in that I have more to lose than to gain by writing this book. But if I don't write it, I lose. Got it. Right, Spencer? I mean, you see me every morning. I'm oh, yes. You were driven to get this book. And, and he had the whole Capitalist Manifesto book written already and decided to dump it make a switch and and the reason i dumped it was because i was in uh, miami just a few weeks ago june 11th that's not that long ago a month ago and i was uh we were talking about the repo market and the reverse repo market and all this and most people don't understand that's called the shadow banking system it's how money is printed and all this stuff and i was up there yelling and screaming and cursing and swearing like a marine on stage and <laughs> So I'm out autographing books, and suddenly a Marine major and a staff, staff walk up to me and say, we'd like to invite you to speak at the Marine Corps birthday. So you're speaking at the ball in Miami? This was on June 11th this oh, year. So I, I stood there and said, what am I looking at? What am I looking at? You know, it's a sign from God that these two Marines invite me back in because you know, I got kicked out. Right. So I said to them, so you've been court-martialed twice, and what they said was, that's why we're inviting you. <laughs> but anyway, so, so I flew from Miami 
next day to Belize, and I'm talking about the Capitalist Manifesto and Death Before Dishonor and what's happening with Marxism and all this, there was Naval Academy graduates in there, Air Force Academy, uh, foreign air observers and all this, um, Marine snipers. Mm-hmm. They're all in my real estate class, and they said, we're on, we're, we'll fight with you. So this whole thing is the mission of our company. Is we, we have to take our country back. And mission determines your team. I don't want any snowflake school teachers. I want the guys who actually do fight for our country. We, gotta, we, we are a call to duty again. I like it. Powerful. All right. Spencer, any wisdom you want to share? Um, just everything that I've learned from Robert, and I'm pretty sure that this stems from his lessons in the Marine Corps, but, and it's a part of the BI Triangle mission, team, leadership. That's military school. While we focus on first word I learned at the academy, mission. Second is you learn team and leadership because you, you put it in front of 20, 18-year-old kids, and you go, one, one of you is section leader. You go, section, 10, hut. Right face, forward, arch. Yeah. That's how we're taught. Take care of your people. They take care of the team. Yep. All right. I like it. Gentlemen, yep. it has been fun. So for Spencer, Robert, and myself, we're out of here, folks. See ya. Thank you. Thank you.